What is going on, everybody? Welcome into another episode of Taking Heat here on the YouTube channel. Some things came up over the past week where I wasn't quite able to get it onto Spotify or some other platforms, but it goes without saying, if you want to see the, the podcast on any other platform, let me know down in the comments where you'd like to see us or hear us, I guess I should say, and why. Uh, my name is Blake Holmes, and we are on episode three of Taking Heat, where the topic for this week will be one hit wonders in sports players who see players or teams who it seems like they had one good stretch and then they seem to disappear from their respective sport we had some great answers to the prompt this week so you would definitely want to stick around and catch those answers as it was myself jacob underwood cameron woolwine and logan porter cam making his return after a scheduling issue that happened last week so once again be sure to hit a like on the video, hit subscribe on the YouTube channel. Let me know down in the comments what you think about our takes, what you think about platforms you want to see us on, or if you have any topic ideas or want to be on the show, let me know down in the comments and we will take it into consideration. So with that being said, I'll go ahead and jump right into the podcast. So I hope you enjoy this episode of Taking Heat. So I have went ahead and spun the wheel off the screen right now. It has landed on Logan once again. Um, well, if, you, if you ate first, you're last. That's how it goes, and it typically is going either way uh, with you. So we'll go ahead and start with you. The The first take here for the biggest one-hit wonders in sports history. All right. So I'm going to start off by saying um, – it's hard to imagine this as a one-hit wonder, as it is. It's a more popular take in what would be like an underdog win, but because to get to the position that he was in, he had to have been excellent in his career. Um, but nonetheless, uh, considering what happened afterwards, I think it's a pretty good consideration. So I'm going to be talking about Buster Douglas versus Mike Tyson in the 1990 heavyweight title belt so coming into the 1990 fight mike tyson had the world boxing council world boxing association and the international boxing federation heavyweight titles so there were three titles that were up to the plate okay now buster douglas coming into this fight he was 29 4 and 1 so that's a pretty sizable record not bad but he didn't have any titles. He had went up previously uh, for a title fight in 1987 uh, where he lost. It was for the International uh, Boxing Federation title, which had been vacant, and he lost it. So it, it wasn't it wasn't looking good. And coming into this fight, it was already a 42 to 1 underdog odds against Buster Douglas. Okay? So, uh coming into the fight okay the fight was in tokyo and uh it was it was widely considered to be a 90 second fight because in the previous fight mike tyson won by knockout knockout in 93 seconds so it was kind of a warm-up a lot of people thought that uh this was going to be a warm-up fight he was going to beat buster douglas and then he was going to go on to fight holyfield the next time Coming into the fight, Mike Tyson had 37 wins, no losses. And four of those wins were by uh, unanimous decision. So the rest of those were knockouts or TKOs, which, you know, 
for a 23-year-old Mike Tyson, that's crazy. He was the unstoppable man, untouchable, the iron Mike Tyson. Now, Buster Douglas, he was going through he was going through a tough time. 23 days before the fight, his mother had passed away. And the day before, the mother of his child um, had gotten the flu and was sick with a kidney disease. So he, he didn't have, he had a lot on his mind coming into the fight. Now, the fight starts and Buster Douglas isn't scared. Comes in, throws some good punches. It ends up getting to the eighth round where Buster Douglas is knocked down uh, and everyone thinks the fight's over. And this actually led to a big controversy at the time because they thought the ref was counting slow. Regardless, he got back up on the nine count, bell rang, came down, ended up in the 10th round. He got a good punch on Tyson's face and it was the first knockdown in Mike Tyson's career. He had never been knocked down before that point. And it actually had, there was actually a pretty famous moment where uh, Mike Tyson's trying to get up and he grabs his mouth guard and he puts it in his mouth, but it's not incorrectly. It's like sticking out of his mouth. And, and then the, the counts over and he, he loses. Um, but you know, to make it to 10 rounds with Mike Tyson, especially when it was considered a warmup fight was insane. Now, the reason that this is a one hit wonder is right after that, he went to do his title defense, lost against Evander Holyfield in the third round, and immediately retired after that. Uh, he retired in 1990. It was in, I think, October. Um, and this doesn't ha- and this, he did come back to boxing eventually. Um, he had got, he had gained a bunch of weight and had nearly died from a diabetic coma. But afterwards, he motivated himself to come in and fight again. And he actually, he was, he was pretty successful. He came back. He won eight out of the nine matches he fought, but eventually just retired again in 1999. Didn't really do much, but with that win. Buster Douglas, I'll be the first to say, is one of the most famous sporting events ever. I mean, when you're talking about uh, a topic that we kind of talked a little bit off there could become an, a topic at some point. The biggest upsets in sports history. There are very few, from an odd standpoint, that are actually bigger odds to overcome than uh, than Buster Douglas, aside from maybe the Kentucky Derby this past year, which was I believe it was eighty something to one odds. So, yeah, as, like you're saying, I mean, Buster Douglas had a ton of courage to step up, and this is the type of thing. This is I'm trying to think of, a, of an equivalent. Of this would be an equivalent to the third string quarterback for the Jacksonville Jaguars coming in and beating Tom Brady head to head in a football game. This is the equivalent to. Um, I mean, it's it's almost like when uh, Nick Foles uh, it, with the Eagles. You know, he was the backup quarterback uh, coming into the Super Bowl. The difference is, I will I will say, and and. Actually, that's a pretty good comparison just because, as you mentioned, Buster Douglas did have a little bit of a field of work before coming into this fight. It wasn't like they just picked... A lot of times when people paint the picture of this of this fight, they, they paint Buster Douglas as just some Joe Schmo they picked up off the street when it really wasn't the case. Buster Douglas was nothing spectacular. He wasn't, in theory, again, the reason why the odds are so high, he wasn't anything on Mike Tyson's level 
at the beginning of the fight, but he was a seasoned boxer. He had gone through, uh, gone through the ringer at times, and yeah, like you said, I mean, one hit wonder. He had what might be the most famous upset and famous fight in sports history, and then retired shortly after that, after losing his title defense to Evander Holyfield, who is another spectacular boxer as well. But yeah, I mean, I, I do see where you're coming from. Uh, this does have a pretty solid body of work before that fight, especially when you compare it to other uh, famous boxers. But for considering he only held one title in his entire career, and it came at the expense of Mike Tyson, the definition of a one-hit wonder. Right. And I mean, it, it, and especially like for him to retire immediately after his next fight, after he loses that title again. Because um, you could almost, like, at the time, he was 30 at the time and when he fought Holyfield. Um, so for him to immediately retire after that was just crazy. But granted, he won, I think, like $26 million from that Holyfield fight, which was crazy because he made more in the Evander Holyfield fight than he did in the Mike Tyson fight. He got that notoriety from the Tyson fight. Underwood, Cam, any other comments? Um, yes, I have. I, 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 uh, so you could basically say that um, Buster Douglas, App State, Mike Tyson, Michigan, in football terms. FBS, FBS, upset. That's the way I look at it. Um, it's probably about the same odds to that game in, I guess it's 2008, 7, whichever year. 2007. Um, yeah, 2007. So that's just absolutely insane. And I, I kind of wonder if Mike Tyson, I mean, like we talked about, he had a he had a decent body of work. But I wonder if Mike Tyson maybe overlooked him a little bit, like didn't really expect to, to lose. Um, I know that happens so, sometimes in other sports. So Some of the other research I did, like coming into it, I didn't take notes on it, but it was just something I read over. Um Coming into the fight, it was it was rumored that uh, Mike Mike Tyson in Tokyo had partied for two days straight. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. he was told he was told to go to sleep early since the fight was the next day, but he refused because he thought that uh, Douglas was an amateur and he couldn't um, even if he didn't sleep for a certain amount of time, he would still be able to beat him. Um, yeah. And the announcer okay. led into it okay. too. Combat sports are crazy too. It only takes one punch, one kick. One, you right. hit somebody in the, the, the right place, and no matter how strong or good they are, they're going to drop. So combat sports are crazy. So that's, I mean, the runs of you know Mike Tyson, Muhammad Ali, some of the, the Floyd Money Mayweather's are absolutely insane. I mean, you just you talked about the the one time he'd ever been knocked down. So crazy that they avoid that one punch that you could accidentally throw and, and that's been my thought process when people talk about Mayweather because all of his famous fights here recently you go back you look at Pacquiao and those types of fights they say Mayweather did a lot of dodging he was a lot of you know, moving around not really avoiding punches and the reason for that people are saying like oh he's he's a coward for it it's, it's cowardly but in reality that's the smartest way to box because in theory you're, you're, the punches that you are throwing are landing at a higher percentage yes the other opponent may throw more but they're missing more you're avoiding that knockout punch that haymaker and 
Yeah, exactly like you're saying right there with, with Tyson. Tyson overlooked Douglas. There's a motivational video on YouTube. I will go ahead and give it a shout out. If you just look up Buster Douglas Why, it's talking about how when it comes to anything you're doing, you got to find your why. You got to find why you're doing this, why you're getting up. Uh, and Buster Douglas's why was because he wanted to shock the world. He wanted to. Uh, you know, show make a promise to his mom because his mom was telling people how he, he was going to go and knock out Mike Tyson and all this and that. But when you're talking about combat sports, like Underwood was alluding to, all it takes is one slip up, one freak accident, one punch that goes in the wrong spot, and it can completely not only decide an entire fight, but it can decide a career. And again, D Buster Douglas. Weidman fight, but he breaks his leg on just of a Chris Weidman blocking, and Anderson Silva is never the same ever again from that moment. So just being in the the, the wrong kick thrown at the wrong time. You could say the same thing for Conor McGregor right now too, depending on what happens with him. But exactly. Um, any other comments, Cam? Anything? Um, the only thing I was just going to add is that it's uh, not many people can say they knocked out like Mike Tyson, so it's kind of. The feat that not many people can say, so I think it just adds to like the one-hit wonder kind of thing, just because of how rare it is. One-hit wonder, no pun intended. Uh, can I add a, a fun little fact real quick? Of course. Um, I just I just got the joke you made. <laughs> um, so uh, before after the event, uh, there there was going to be a, the WWF's uh, main event three between Hulk Hogan and Macho Man Randy Savage. And they were going to have Mike Tyson come on and be the special guest referee. But after Douglas knocked out Tyson, two weeks before the event, they were like, get Douglas in here. And they pulled Douglas in for the main event at uh, the WWF's main event. And Buster, I mean, Buster Douglas made a name and a career off of that fight. And it's something, like like you said, that the, a lot of times when you think about boxing and when you think about really any sport – the definition of a one-hit wonder is someone that you can talk about multiple or is someone that you only talk about one thing. Buster Douglas, you only talk about Mike Tyson. Even though he had a solid career overall, you only talk about him with Mike Tyson. So the definition, good start to the show so far. Spinning the wheel to see who goes up next. It will be by a slim margin. Cam will be going up next. Um... And leaving myself and Underwood after that. So, Cam, go ahead and take it away. So, you just mentioned that obviously when you're talking about a one-hit wonder, you want to talk about someone who is only known for one thing. And whenever I mention this player, I think the immediate first thought is going to be the helmet catch. And obviously that player is David Tyree. Now, we all know him for Super Bowl catch where he catches it with his helmet and you know, obviously goes on to beat the undefeated Patriots that season. But that's pretty much the only thing that he has ever done. Like, I'm looking at his career stats, and there's nothing here is just making me think anything else that's positive. Like, the year that that catch happened, he had only played in 12 games with five targets, four receptions, and no touchdowns. I mean, pretty much leading up to that in the playoff same year he had only caught four balls whole playoffs up to that Super Bowl he had not done pretty much anything else besides catch four balls for 47 yards and a touchdown but he goes up 
makes the, pretty much one of the biggest plays in Super Bowl history, and that's pretty much the only thing that people are going to remember him for. So that's the reason I'm choosing him as my one-hit wonder player is because pretty much without that, he goes down as just another wide receiver. Not only that, but I also want to go ahead and give something in your defense to defend your take as well. He also caught a touchdown earlier in that game, uh, something that's overshadowed. He actually he caught a touchdown in the Super Bowl, and I believe now uh, you have the stats up so you can fact check me on this, but I believe the most catches he ever had in a season was about 16. That was the most he ever had in an entire season. And he comes through. And Okay, I want to go ahead and say I, I am a firm believer that when you're talking about the the helmet catch and things like that, props goes to Eli Manning as well for him to be able to escape the pocket and just seem like there were nothing but white jerseys around him and he just squirts out and gets that ball down the field. Uh, it. Playoff Eli Manning for some reason turned into a god compared to the rest of his career. If you look go back and look at the Mario Manningham pass and things like that too in the later Super Bowl. But like you said, uh, Tyree coming up making, in my opinion, the toughest catch in Super Bowl history um, over two New England defenders against the undefeated New England Patriots and cementing his name in NFL history over something. Again, a guy who barely caught over 10 passes ever in a season. So for him to come out and have the game and the performance he did against the team he did, I mean, we, we talked about it a little bit of jokingly, and I don't think any of us picked him, but we're talking Lynn Sanity-level hype for this type of thing. I mean, Tyree, an NFL legend, all because of one game and the definition of a one-hit wonder. Oh, I will say... There is a Wikipedia article called Helmet Catch that is just specifically for this month. It's one of the most the absurd plays. Uh, I was going to say, the Helmet Catch definitely goes down in like one of the best plays in Super Bowl history. And obviously, props to Elon Manning for escaping the pocket. But, I mean, as you had said, the most receptions this dude ever had was 19 in a season. So, it's not like... Like, on his whole career, he pretty much had, like, a below-average season for, like, a normal wide receiver, I would say. Like, career stats, like, 650 yards, four touchdowns, 54 receptions. I mean, that's like a that's like a bad season for... <laughs> Not even... Like, just bad. That's what I'm saying. Like, that's just a bad season in general, and that's this dude's career. So, I mean, it was pretty much made in one game, one play. Under, Underwood, any comments? Yeah, so I think you fit the mold of One Hit Wonder really good with uh, David Tyree. And then I was just thinking, as Blake brought up Mario Manningham, we could probably do a whole discussion on One Hit Wonder or Giants wide receivers who took the world by storm and then never did anything again. I started thinking about Victor <laughs> Cruz, salsa dancing, and then Mario Manningham and David Tyree. So whatever reason they have receivers who do things, then it's all off the face of the earth. And Starlink Shepard is another one that had a couple of good years and Golden Tate. <laughs> yeah, Sterling Shepard went to Carolina and did absolutely not a single thing for two years. So, I, listen, I trust me. That, they have some receivers that do some crazy stuff. Um, but, yeah, I, I figured somebody was going to talk about David Tyree um, because I remember watching the game, you know, and it, I, obviously I'm a Panthers fan, so I really wasn't invested. But at the time, I wanted the, the Patriots to lose because why would we ever want them to win? Um, 
So I'm watching the, the game, and I don't remember who the safety was, but if you remember the play, the safety's like kind of thinks he knocked the ball out, and then he looks up and sees the ball like pinned between the, his hand and his helmet, and he tries to knock it away a few more times. And it's just one of those moments where he makes that catch, and you're like, oh, they may do this. And then they end up doing it. And I think it probably wouldn't have the same, like, magnitude of a catch if it's not the Super Bowl. But for David Tyree to – and, I mean, we can probably agree. It was more so luck than actual skill. Like, he, he made an insane play, but he probably couldn't do that ever again if he tried. Um, but for him to make that play in the Super Bowl was just absolutely insane. It's one of those things, too. I love those moments in the Super Bowl because – in any NFL game because how many times do we see catches like that to where – realistically, there's no way in the world that they're making that same catch. I mean, you go back and you think about Tyree, you think about Julio Jones on the side, you think about Santonio Holmes in the corner of the end zone. Like, these catches that are just freaks, you know, freak incidents in football, but they come at the biggest stage. And Tyree, like you said, uh, the main thing, and I remember sports science did a special on the Tyree catch and the amount of science that they put into it, the amount of force that Tyree had to put on his, the ball onto his helmet to keep it stationary and to keep it. Because the other thing that's crazy about that play, if you go back and watch it too, this is back in the days that no one had any idea what a catch was. You go back and you look, there was no question about it. That ball, the nose of it, nothing touches the ground. And for him to be able to go up and make a play like that in the moment and the time that he did, and again, like you said, Giants receivers, if you're a wide receiver, now maybe not these days because Kenny Galladay's leaving a little, being a little suspect, but at the same time, I mean, if you were a, if you were a receiver back then to go play for Eli Manning, apparently, because you'll be a god in the playoffs. Uh, but yeah, Tyree, I mean, like I said, I think it's a great choice. That's one that... Without that catch, I, I I like to think that a lot of us, all of us are pretty much diehard football fans. None of us even hear about, know, have any clue who David Tyree is without that game. Are we talking about those people probably wouldn't even know the receiver's name. They just know it as the helmet catch. Yeah, I would say that's probably true for the, the more casual people. You remember that guy who caught the ball with his helmet? Uh, <laughs> we're, talking about, <laughs> we're talking about catches in the uh, Super Go back and make this comment. Um, Clint Blakeman, NFL referee, if you happen to peruse past this part podcast and you're listening, Jericho Cotri caught the ball okay, on third down <laughs> when Cam Newton threw it. It never hit the ground. And then we had to punt, and then the Broncos ended up scoring, which set the tone for Super Bowl 50. So, Clint Blakeman, if you ever listen to this, you were wrong. Jericho Cotri caught the ball. Byproduct, Carolina actually won Super Bowl 50. So that's another topic. For uh, talking about it, I also want to say Jesse James caught it, but mm-hmm. Des didn't. <laughs> Fair. Jesse James did catch that ball. That was crazy. Yes, he did. That's, that's a crazy, another topic. But well, what, that ball. Next, next, next topic on the show. What is a catch? Um, uh, Logan, any other comments? I mean, no. I mean, the the helmet catch in itself. I mean, like, like you said. I mean, you know. I, I love football, but I did, like I don't really pay attention to a whole lot of people outside of like my kind of circle of players. So I had no clue who David Tyree was um, coming into it. David Tyree, a great choice for this topic, and again, one that NFL is an NFL legend. Up next will be Underwood, who goes third on the show. So, Underwood, take it away. The floor is yours. 
Alright, so I already said this off-air. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm gonna lose, but I'm excited to pick this player because it... Honestly, if you're not really a, a die-hard fan or you didn't pay attention to the NBA in the early 2010s, you probably don't even know who this guy is. Um, but I'm gonna read it without saying who he is, um, reading directly off the internet. So this is not me. It's reading off of a website right now. It says, Blank was chosen by the Milwaukee Bucks with the 15th overall pick in the 2010 NBA Draft. On July 8th, this player signed his rookie contract. Uh, on February 20th, he was assigned to the D-League at the time, which has now changed. And then on February 26, 2011, he was recalled by the Bucks. Um, on November 30th, he recorded his only triple-double ever with 10 points, 12 rebounds, 10 blocks, and a loss to Minnesota. He finished the season second in blocks per game behind Serge Ibaka. NBA's most uh, improved player award. This player also signed a four-year, $44 million contract extension with the Milwaukee Bucks. So, the player that I'm talking about is Larry Sanders. Now, Larry Sanders, there was a time in 2012 to 2013 when he basically took over the league with his shot-blocking ability, and he was actually deemed, in most people's opinion, a top center in the league. And you got to think back. I know it seems like ancient time, but Andrew Bogut used to be a star center, well, maybe not a star, a very good caliber starting center in the NBA. So he gets traded to the Warriors. The Bucks, up until that point, maybe a Michael Red, but they haven't traditionally been a very good basketball team since the 70s when they had, you know, the Big O and then they had Kareem. Um, but going with the, with the one-hit wonder flow of things, Larry Sanders had one season um, in which he played at least 1,000 minutes. Um, it says the 1,937 he logged in 2012 and 2013 isn't far off of the 2,700 that he played the entire rest of his career. Um, so in one season, he basically almost passed what he played the rest of his career. Um, Larry Sanders in his outbreak season in 2012-2013 was a giant reason why the Milwaukee Bucks made the playoffs. The year before, they won 31 basketball games, which is rough. Um, so this says he was a plus .7 points per 100 possessions while he was on the floor and a minus 4.3 when he was off of it. Um, so what that means is when he's off the floor, they're getting outscored, losing games. When he's on the floor, they're outscoring other teams. So per 75 possessions, which is a good way of viewing the NBA, because um, as a center, and in the role he was playing in the offense, it is tough to score. So he obviously, I think he averaged 10 points per game total. But per 75 possessions, he was averaging 13.7 points, 13.2 rebounds, and four blocks, which earned him a, like I said, a four-year extension that paid him nearly $50 million. Um, all the reports, and Zach Lowe, if you know who that is, he's a, a big NBA podcaster, reporter. He was saying that he had all of the skills to be Tyson Chandler. Um, he was, you know, a springy, athletic alley um, He had all these tools in his bag, uh, but that evolution, you know, it never came to fruition after that season. Um, he only played in 55 games the rest of his career, and then only two years into that extension, he stepped away from the NBA and would never play NBA basketball ever again. Um, so Larry Sanders has bounced around. He's been the big three. You know, he's played a little bit overseas. Um, but for one season, 2012 to 2013, in my opinion, I remember him blocking every shot, and I remember thinking Larry Sanders might be in top five center in the NBA. It's funny to me because that really, obviously, being a follower of basketball at that time, that wasn't that unpopular of opinion by any means. Larry Sanders was looked at as one of the it's one of the upstart centers, like one of the uh, the futures of the league, especially when you're talking about a team as rough as Milwaukee was for him to come in and kind of give a breath of fresh air. When you first started describing the player, my mind went to two people, and it was either him or John Henson. And then whenever you were talking about 
and then you started talking about it a little bit. That went. I, I realized where you were going, but yeah, Larry Sanders on the defensive end was one of, if not the best defensive center in basketball that year. He was consistently. Of course, they went to the playoffs and got shellacked by the Heat. In the but but the fact that he got that Bucks team there uh, again, and people don't realize just how bad that Bucks team actually was back in the day. So for him to come up and again was known as like the one of the future big men of in the NBA, and then it just seemed like after that one season, a switch was hit, and he just was never himself. Another player I find very similar, um, though that it's a little bit more well known. Um, but he was better for a little bit longer. Is Roy Hibbert? Roy Hibbert, when he got when he left Indiana, or even towards the tail end of his Indiana career, his stats just t- tanked. They went straight down. They weren't what they were at one point. Whenever the Pacers were threatening for the Eastern Conference Finals every single season, and it was obvious that Hibbert was not going to be um, was not going to be able to keep those stats up, keep that production up for the remainder of his career. Imagine Roy Hibbert's career. But much shorter, and for that one season, Larry Sanders was probably a better center than Roy Hibbert ever was in his prime. And then he goes down to, like you said, out of the league completely in two years. Yes. And the thing with Larry Sanders is, like, like as a Celtics fan, he reminds me a lot of Robert Williams. Like, Robert Williams blocks every shot in the vicinity. Uh, I mean, Rob's probably, hopefully, going to have a little bit more. Rob's probably a little bit better than Larry Sanders overall. But the, the, it's the same style player. Like when Larry Sanders is in the paint, like you're scared. And Larry Sanders is listed at six foot eleven, which means he might have been six foot ten, whatever. But the same. I mean, when Larry Sanders is around, average of four blocks per seventy five possessions. That's insane. You got to assume. I mean, I know it's early twenty tens, and the three point shot hasn't been a giant proclivity as of this point, but it's still trending upward. So you're getting four blocks per seventy five shots. That's insane. That, that's 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 pretty crazy. That's the definition of a rim protector. Cam Logan, uh, to get to give an idea of what this Milwaukee team was at the time, uh, in per game statistics, their, their top five players were Monte Ellis, Brandon Jennings, JJ Redick, Arsan Ilyasova, and Larry Sanders. JJ Redick, one of the other reasons they made the playoffs because he barely he only missed the playoffs. If I'm not mistaken, he only missed playoffs one year. And it was with New Orleans. Uh, and Brandon Jennings, can I just go ahead and say this as well? If I ever, if we did like a, a top disappointments in in sports history, I thought Brandon Jennings was going to be so good as a, as a point guard. And then he just was, he never got to the level he he hit back in high school and things like that. But Brandon, Brandon Jennings, an average NBA player at best. Monte Ellis, a solid scorer. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that's a team... That team would be lucky to win 35 games, 30 games even. And like you said, what was it? It was the year before they won 32 games, and they go out and they win 31 games, and they go and make the playoffs next year with Larry Sanders playing at the level he was. So, yeah, I mean, a much less known type of guy because, again, he just wasn't – That's not. it's not a – say, like David Tyree, he had the moment in the Super Bowl. Buster Douglas had the moment. Larry Sanders never really had that moment because, like I said, in the playoffs – it was just one of those things. It's the inevitable. It's a it's an upstart team. They run into a dynasty like LeBron's Heat, and it just doesn't go well. But Sanders at that time was no, looked at. I'm trying to think of a center he would be compared to. You know, as far as not just play style, but reputation 
uh, in the NBA today. Robert Williams is a pretty good one, I would say. And then when you're talking about, I would say if uh, you know Andrew Wiseman, if Wiseman can ever get healthy, we knew when he was healthy, he was playing pretty good defense. Uh, was a bright spot for that Warriors team. And people know if Wiseman can get to the floor, he's seen as one of the fu- a future piece for the Warriors. This is a very similar situation that Larry Sanders was for the Bucks, and then up and out of where a switch was flipped and he was never the same. Yeah, it's just crazy. Like I said, I, picking this player, I don't really expect to win. But I, Larry Sanders to me was insane. I, I remember, and this 2K doesn't matter, but I remember always putting Larry Sanders in on 2K. He's a rim protector. He's fun to play with. He can catch alley-oops. Uh, yeah, he, like I said, he's just a lesser-known player. If you're not a big NBA fan, you probably don't even remember him. Uh, but at the time, I remember thinking, this guy's insane, and then he only plays 55 games, or even not, not even starts. He just plays in 55 games, averages about six points in those 55 games, and then he's out of the league in two years. Cam, any comments? One thing I can comment, I, was, uh, I have zero clue who Larry Sanders was, so props to this because I'm, I would consider myself a pretty big NBA fan and I have zero clue who this dude was but the only comment I was going to say is maybe this dude could be seen as like a uh, more athletic like Rudy, Rudy Gobert you know like not very offensively but like shot blocker rebounder you know the, this dude's probably more athletic though but. the difference was so Gobert is probably a better defender now rim protector than Sanders was but Sanders was the better offensive player than Rudy Gobert was yeah. I just don't like Rudy Gobert, I'll just be honest. That's the reason I, uh... Not many people do, to my knowledge. Nah, I just just don't Mitchell sure doesn't. Yeah, no kidding. One pass a game. Alright, so... So far we have Logan with Buster Douglas, Cam with David Tyree, and Underwood with Larry Sanders. I'm going to go ahead and for mine, I'm going to flip it a little bit. And we talked a little bit off the air, off recording. And we said that teams were going to be allowed. And, you know, I did some research. I was looking at, like, top, you know, biggest one-hit wonders in sports, uh, famous one-hit wonders in sports. And I didn't see this team listed anywhere, even though other teams were. And I did want to go ahead and give a shout-out. And I'm going to go ahead and say the team itself, so the organization – I'm not a fan of in real life. They are a rival of my my ba- favorite baseball team, the Atlanta Braves. I'm not a fan of this team, but I have to give credit where credit is due. I don't know how much credit this really is because it's a one hit wonder, but they did it, and it's one of the biggest uh, history and one of the biggest uh, surprises in MLB history. And of course, I'm leading up to it. It's the 1969 Miracle Mets. Um, when you're talking about baseball, I actually also considered, you know, if I hadn't done David Freeze for the most clutch moment, uh, for the most clutch performance, I would have considered him here. But Freeze did go on to have a somewhat decent career. He wasn't a bench warmer anywhere by any means, so I didn't want to include him. But the Miracle Mets were a team, the epitome of a team that came out of nowhere and really never reached their zenith ever again. Uh, again, this was in 1969, and you know with a team called the Miracle Mets, there's going to be something crazy that happens. In 1962, the early 60s is when they joined the National League East. They, the National League at this point was 10 teams, and that was it. It was only 10 teams, uh, two divisions, I believe is what it was. And they had 120 losses in 1962. At that time, I believe, was a record for the most losses in a season. So things are not going great for the Mets. Uh, 
doesn't get much better. They re- remain last, I believe, every season up until 1968. In 1968, they come out with a 73 and 89 record, but finish ninth. So it's an improvement. It's you know, you gotta start somewhere when it comes to these teams. Um, let me let me go ahead and say this: key pitchers. I know Logan and Cam, you're not as familiar with baseball, but Underwood, a couple of these will jump off the page, and and one of them definitely will. Uh, key pitchers that they ended up getting for this 1969 season. Tom Seaver was one that came over, and Nolan Ryan was another one who came and pitched for the Mets, as well as uh, Jerry Koosman, who was another above-average starter who was pitching for the Mets in this season. Entering June of this season. So, you know, season starts in April. It goes until October with the World Series. So about halfway through, just under halfway through, the Mets were under five hundred. They did. They looked lost. They looked like they were going to continue to be the Mets of old. And something special happened in June where this team rattled off 11 straight wins. They ended up just you know, turning on the right page. They completely just started annihilating the remainder of the National League, the remainder of the league at this point. And they managed to finish the season 162. So you take this into consideration... To be under 500 with almost half the season remaining and for them to suddenly make a run to where they are 38 games over 500 randomly out of the blue. And we know now that Tom Seaver and Nolan Ryan, these two are Hall of Fame pitchers. We know that they are unbelievable talents and they had a lot of pretty decent talent overall outside of this. This was not the same. No one expected this from the Mets. They were not, there's, again, there's a reason they're called the Miracle Mets. They go through, finish 162, winning the National League East. Uh, of course, the way it worked at this point was they had what was called the National League Championship Series, in which, you know, baseball these days, you have the wild card, the, the divisional series, and then the NLCS, and then for the, other, for the American League, it's the ALCS, so on and so forth, and the World Series. Well, back then, it was just the NLCS. It was the top two teams in the National League. And then you played, and then you went into the World Series from there. So, in the playoffs, this team only only lost one game. The NLCS is three games at this point, and the World Series is best of four games. Or The NLCS is best of five. The World Series is best of seven. They beat the Braves 3 to nothing. In the National League, in the NLCS, who had had their number for years. And then they defeat the Baltimore Orioles in five in the World Series. The reason that, yeah, maybe that you guys may be thinking this is the start of a dynasty, this is the start. But the reason they are a one-hit wonder is this team never made it back. Never made it back anywhere close to the World Series. The best finish they ever had for the remainder of their season was third in the National League East. Um, and that's good for typically about fourth or fifth, give or take, in the National League. So the NL East was tough, but they never made it back. They never even got close to the World Series ever again. In fact, the Mets never made a World Series again and, until the next one that they won, which was in 1986 against the Boston Red Sox. Of course, I hate to bring that up for you, Underwood. Bill Buckner at first base. But this is a team, once again, when you're talking about the Mets, when you're talking about the the eras of MLB baseball. This is a team that seemingly showed up, won a championship, 
and then dipped and never got that close again. Kind of similar to how the Florida Marlins did. They won uh, two World Series in, I believe, five years of each other, and then they just have never even come close to World Series ever again. This is this very similar situation. The Mets with only two World Series championships. This was their first in organizational history, and it came from a moment in which it seemed like they were out of nowhere. No one expected them to come up and play at the level that they did again at the time. Tom Seaver, Nolan Ryan, not the highest known pitchers at this point. And they go through, only lose one game in the entire playoff run, and never get close to World Series ever again. That is, yeah, that's crazy. How long, um, you may not know this, Blake, but how long did Nolan Ryan and Tom Seaver stay on that team? With the Mets, it, it wasn't much longer. I think it was a few years after that. But obviously, I mean, just as a prime example, if I ask you what team Nolan Ryan is most known for pitching for, it's the Texas Rangers. It's those types of teams. It's not the New York Mets. So for him to come through, exactly. um, Hall of, again, Hall of Fame pitchers. And But at the time, that wasn't expected. No one really knew. Tom Seaver was originally actually supposed to go pitch for the rivals Atlanta, but then that deal got voided, different situation, and he ended up in New York. Uh, so at the time, again, unsung, not really known heroes at this point, and they go through, make it to the MLB mountaintop, and once again, just disappear, it seems like, aside from a few average seasons after that. I have a good question. So, since I don't really know a lot about baseball, how common is it for dynasties in baseball compared to like basketball per se? Because I feel like in basketball, you see like a lot of similar teams every year, and I'm just not sure if like baseball is the same way or is it every year is sort of different. So one one answer to that question I will tell you is there is a team, the team with the most championships in the Big Four sports in all of the country and all of the United States is in baseball. The United, the New York Yankees have 27 world championships. Um, now I will say that now the Yankees teams, if you go back in the day, they had legends like of course, Babe Ruth, they had Lou Gehrig, they had Mickey Mantle, those types of players. But when you go through their dynasties in baseball, they do exist. Um, it's not the, the difference is, so like NBA basketball, you go back, you think about the Boston Celtics, you think about the LA Lakers, uh, here recently the Golden State Warriors. In baseball, you have several different eras of the Yankees that go in there. I would say you have a couple of seasons where the Braves typically run the ran the NL. Um, you think of, realistically, the Red Sox have had a, a, a stretch there, but they don't really have dynasties. The difference is, though, this necessarily, you, there's a lot of teams, there's not many teams you see win the World Series that you think they stole one, that you think they weren't going to be in that position. The only team I can think of really in modern baseball history that I can think of that you didn't say at the beginning of the season, yeah, this is a World Series contender, is the Kansas City Royals, I believe, in 2015. I could be mistaken about that. Uh, but... The, the Royals winning the World Series, that's been the only team to where you could say at the beginning of the year, because you go back, let's look at past World Series champions. The Braves had high expectations. Dodgers had high expectations. Red Sox had high expectations. A lot of these teams, they're not dynasties. They don't win a ton of World Series altogether, but they are seen at the beginning of the season as a true title contender. And for this team, not only... Where they looked at at the beginning of the season. Reminder: This is a team that finished ninth in the NL East or in the NL altogether, uh, ninth out of tenth 
and with a 73 and 89 record, and was below 500 with a little over uh, a little over half of the season left, and they go through and go on one of the most historic tears in MLB history, and then never make it back. So, the answer to your question, I would say, they do happen. Not quite, they don't happen necessarily as often as other sports, but it's not very common that a team who is at the bottom, that that a team comes in and wins the World Series that's not expected to. Like I said, only teams I can think of maybe the Royals or the Nationals back in, or yeah, say the Nationals back in 2018. Also, the salary cap plays a huge, I mean, in basketball they have ways of moving around it but the, the the lack of salary cap is also a giant reason the mlb teams are able to pay so much money the smaller market teams kind of struggle at times that's there's a i mean there's a reason the yankees can pay john carlos stanton aaron judge garrett cole all these players um as opposed to i mean a smaller market team like you said the royals i mean they just don't have the payroll the owners aren't don't have the money they can fork over to pay these great players if players want to go where they're going to make the most money obviously um, that's also a big reason why the certain teams in baseball stay good the entire time. And again, like like I said, the Yankees, twenty seven, uh, second place, I believe. Don't quote me on this, but it might be the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, I believe, and I, I don't know the exact number they have, but you know, it, yeah, like you're talking about basketball, you think about it with football too. I mean, you go back and you think about Green Bay back in the day, then you go into the the Steelers and the Cowboys, then the Patriots. Like they, these teams win over extended periods of time. MLB, like Underwood was saying, is so volatile because there's no salary cap. So the Yankees can theoretically pay whoever they want, whatever they want. in order to come play for them same thing can be said for the Dodgers for any big market team but and the Mets at this time were not really a bit they played in New York that is correct but they were so bad for a large period of time that no one was really wanting to come to New York and for them to come through and like I said they ended up winning the World Series here and the next one they won was yeah back in 1986 against the the Red Sox but yeah, I mean, this is a team, like I said, they play in a big market, big city, but they didn't quite have the the lure that, let's say, the Yankees did because the Yankees had that proven success knowing that, hey, we're going to get the best players so we're going to continue to win. The Mets didn't have that pedigree. This is their first World Series ever, and it just so happens the team, like I said, it took them 16 years, 17 years to get back to that point. I think it's an interesting dynamic as on this team, like, you know, like you said, you had, you had Nolan Ryan, but this is a relatively young Nolan Ryan, like a 22 year old, I believe. And for this, this team, which was ninth coming in, it's an interesting dynamic that it's, it is a one hit wonder as like you, like you said, it's just not in a traditional sense that you would think about it. They, like I said, the fact is it's kind of similar to yours, Logan, in the sense that, right. but, but it's a little bit different because in your case, Buster Douglas had a pretty pretty good start to it, an average start to his career before the Mike Tyson fight. The Mets were kind of that after. They were so bad in the 60s, they were a laughing stock. They were known as, as the worst team in the, in the National League up until 1968 and then where they... We're second to last, and then they go through and win the World Series next year. So it's kind of similar to a Cinderella story in some cases, but 
they didn't completely, you know, like Underwoods, for example, Larry Sanders completely fell off. He was completely out of the league within two years. The Mets stayed average. They weren't anything spectacular. They kept, you know, right just barely above 500 in those seasons remaining. But again, they never got to a point like the 162 record they had in 1969. Never even sniffed that record after that until the World Series back again in the 80s. But the Mets with young future Hall of Fame pitchers managed to pull off the the unthinkable in one season and then never got to that point again. Any other comments or questions? I think you summed it up pretty well. I think as a whole, we've done a... So, with all of of the two previous topics there's been things that kind of flirt the line of maybe do they stay in um for like the clutch performance is isaiah thomas is a, you know really clutch performance or lebron's moment but i think this week we did a great job of all four topics are one hit wonders david tyree one hit wonder buster Douglas, or buster Douglas, excuse me one hit wonder larry sanders one season one hit wonder uh the miracle mets one hit wonder so i think we all did a fantastic job of staying within the, the topic base this week all right, everyone, let's give each other a round of applause. <laughs> I don't know how well that would get through Discord or not, but... Yeah, but, you know... Cam, Cam any other comments before we get to voting? I, uh, I think this week I have a good shot at it. I think I'm not going to be a loser <laughs> this week. I'm not laughing at that comment. It's just it's just the the confidence in your voice. That just, I don't know. <laughs> hey, buddy, confidence it, it, is it just, of... It just, it just felt out of nowhere, like I wasn't expecting it. So I'm not laughing because I think you'll lose that because you have you had a very. Good, I'm not laughing at that at all. I just thought it was funny. Hey, you all decide. So if you don't want me to win, that's on you all. All right, uh, okay. can we deafen, please? Um. It, well, I just spun the wheel and it landed on me, so I'll be voting first. All right, so that means I'm going last. So I'm taking all these into consideration and. Realistic, like like Underwood said, this is definitely the toughest one to decide so far because every I feel like every option, every answer that was brought to the table fit the definition of the topic pretty well. We didn't really have much of a stretch realistically. Everyone fit the definition of a one hit wonder. I will say, you know, I I do I do really like uh, Larry Sanders coming in because that was a name. Kind of like how I, I said in uh, a previous episode about Spike Albrecht, where you, you said that kind of took your mind to a place you haven't thought of in years. That's kind of how I felt. Because, again, Larry Sanders was one of the more exciting big men to keep an eye out for, as well as once you're talking about Buster Douglas. the the I, Again, I think a lot of people talk about, odds-wise, if you don't include the horse race or the Kentucky Derby from this past year, the biggest odds to overcome gambling wise in sports history. And then when you're talking about David Tyree, once again, a guy who is known for one game and one game only, because other than that, his body of work in the NFL is nothing that anyone would, would think about. And it's when you have a competition as close as this, I do have to give some weight in the fact that this is a guy who I'm going to give it away right here. I already said the comment is on the same level to me as like a Lynn Sanity. And it's going to be, I'm going to give my vote to Cam. I really like the David Tyree uh, 
I like to name a Tyree vote. I think that, like I said, this is a guy who no one knew. No one expected. I, I If you tell me at when you're watching that game that you expect Eli Manning to go to David Tyree with the game on the line, of course, he didn't really have a choice. He makes the magician escape in the pocket. But if you had told me you expect him to go to David Tyree on this play, I would have told you you are you're full of it, and it was there was no way that was going to happen. And yet Tyree comes through not only with the touchdown catch earlier in the game, but makes the biggest play. I don't think I'm too exaggerating an off base say that is a top five play in Super Bowl history, and does nothing after that. So my vote goes to Cam for the first vote cast. Spinning the wheel, the next vote will go to Underwood. Underwood is going to be doing the next vote, so Underwood, take it away. Yeah, so, um, like I said, everybody, I think everybody did a good job. Everybody has a, a good argument. Um, I was going to vote for Cam. That's what I determined, and I still will, but him saying that he thinks he's going to win almost made me change my vote. <laughs> um, so I would like to vote for Cam reluctantly. I want that noted. So Underwood goes to Cam. Cam with two votes so far. Reluctantly. So one and, oh, one and a half votes for Cam right now is what it seems like. Uh, next vote will go to Cam. So Cam, of course, you cannot vote for your own. So out of the three, again, Logan with Buster, uh, with Buster Douglas, Underwood with Larry Sanders, and myself with the Miracle Mets. Who is your vote from there? Um, I really wanted to vote for Underwood just because I had zero idea who Larry Sanders was, but the reluctant vote kind of got me, so I'm going to vote for uh, I want to vote for Logan just because I think that uh, he's really only known for knocking out Mike Tyson. So I mean, realistically, like I said earlier, not many people can say. I think only four or five people have knocked out Mike Tyson. So might be wrong about that. that many. I'm not going to fact check. Yeah, not many it. people can say they are. <laughs> well, like I said, I mean, there's, you can't really go wrong with whoever you vote for. Everybody has a good argument and supporting evidence of why that happened. So, um, I mean, I easily could have voted for Blake. That's the exact definition of a one-hit wonder. Um, and at the time, I mean, like, just I mean, this is going back to what we already talked about, but you don't know Nolan Ryan's going to be Nolan Ryan when he's young. Or Tom you Seaver. At that point, yeah, you just know that they're a pitcher. Like, you, don't, you don't know what's to come in the future. Um, so it's actually, it's really, I don't know. You could have won either way. It, like I said, I could have voted easily for Logan. Um, I reluctantly voted for Cam, or I easily could have voted for Blake. So. Nolan Ryan, I, I, would, I also want to point out one thing, uh, Logan, before we get to the, and I, it's actually a point that you brought up. Tom, like I said, Nolan Ryan at that point, like Logan said, was 23 years old. No one expected – this is the same Nolan Ryan that's revered in MLB history as one of, if not the greatest pitcher in MLB history. So for him to get that start and come through and help the Mets reach that mountaintop for the first time is something that is unbelievable to me. We will go to Logan. Logan, you called it. Since you weren't first, you ended up voting last here. Uh, went first and voted last. So I think at this point, Cam has already won because you can't vote for yourself. But go ahead. Who who would get your vote here for the topic? Well, see, the way, the way I see it is this is already the most rigged podcast. <laughs> I mean, I mean, thank you. <laughs> um, 
but because uh, I mean, I mean, we change we change in answers because because uh, uh, <laughs> you know. But I digress. Exactly. Rigged. <laughs> yes, rigged. <laughs> Cameron was going to give Underwood the point until Underwood <laughs> gave him the reluctant vote. <laughs> uh, Listen, the reluctant vote is still a vote, okay? Just with hesitation. I feel like we may have to change our voting process in later episodes, but nonetheless, the current episode, so I will probably give mine also to Cameron, so I'll give him another reluctant vote since uh, uh, he, he felt so confident of himself earlier, so now Cameron has two whole points. Um, mm. He got a half from me and a half from Underwood. Which um, is still enough to take home. Yes, but... But there's an asterisk. This, this is a... Cameron, you may have won, but we're in the, the bubble, so that's a bubble win for Cameron. <laughs> asterisk. The real win. Yes, asterisk beside that win. So, oh, yeah, yeah we're right ourselves. <laughs> so, with that being said, Cam gets his first win here. All of us with a win at this point now, after the third episode of Taking Heat. With that being said, Cam, of course, will be deciding the topic that we will be talking about next week. We do like to keep it a secret, uh, just so that way you don't, you never know what you're going to expect whenever we upload the episode for the week. So Cameron gets his first win again with his uh, explanation of the David Tyree performance in the Super Bowl against the New England, the undefeated New England Patriots. Uh, but a, a great topic, a great answer. And again, I think great answers all around. This has been the toughest to choose from. But when I think about a guy that showed up for one game and disappeared uh, the definition of a one-hit wonder, realistically, not even a stretch of games, but one game he showed up for and then just disappeared. It's got to be David Tyree. So, congrats to you, Cam. Any final words you'd like to say before we sign off? Um, uh, I'll just say it again. Des didn't catch it. <laughs> Anthony, first now, if you're listening out there, you can go and text Cam right him. now. That one's for him. He will. First now does listen to this podcast, so Cam is digging his own grave right now. First now, of course, once again, thank you for listening out there. Now go attack Cam on Snapchat. <laughs> with, with that being said, uh, same time again. We're, we're, yeah, Cam will be telling us the topic, and we'll come back next week with our answers. I am still looking for some things came up this past week, so I wasn't able to potentially get it onto. Um, a different platform but like always if you have any suggestions for platforms you want to see our podcast on be sure to let them us know down in the comments both either on my facebook page or on the youtube channel i am checking those pretty frequently be sure to like the video subscribe to the channel all that self-promotion stuff um, and as always thanks for listening and so you can expect this in the next episode it'll be episode four at that point to come out at a similar time next week and with that being said, that finishes it up for us. So for my panelists, Cameron Woolwine, Jacob Underwood, and Logan Porter, my name is Blake Holmes. Thank you for spending your time with us here on Taking Heat, and we'll see y'all next time. Have a great week.